believing, <clears throat> believing when the future seems hopeless. Believing when the future seems hopeless. If you'd open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter number 4. One verse, Romans chapter 4, believing when hope becomes hopeless. Let me read about our father Abraham from Romans chapter number 4. Verse 18, speaking of Abraham, who against hope believed in hope. Now, think about that. Against hope, he believed in hope. That he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be who against hope believed in hope. That is a marvelous statement. And that's where we are in 2022. Every time I turn on the news, I don't care how conservative a station I go to, I see a hopeless political world. Who against hope believed in hope. That's our job. Our choir tonight, made up of these beautiful young people, and I'd like to have all the young people in the, in the audience come up and join them. All you young people, please don't stay seated. Come up here. And you'll need your red book, and we are going to turn as a congregation, 188 in the blue book. 188 in the blue book. And this choir will be singing a hymn. And the hymn is where you're going to find the subject matter that will bring hope in a world that seems so hopeless. In a world that seems so very hopeless. We'll be turning now to this beautiful hymn in the Blue Book 188. And if you will join the little choir, and this will be your last opportunity to stand.
Thank you. You may be seated. Tonight we want to focus on the cross. Now we've been having some marvelous journeys through the glorious truth about the two events that turned the world upside down. And those two events are still, right now, the greatest events that have ever happened and will never be superseded until the one who hung on the cross, who rose from the dead, returns in glory and power and honor to receive his kingdom. Now that's sad, 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 sad news for the preterist. But I warn you, he's coming and when he returns, he will not be ready to wear a crown of thorns. He will be ready to be crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. And every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. And all those who should not that he should reign over them, he will say, bring hither and slay them before my feet. That's a Jesus you have not heard about. But it's the Jesus of the Bible. Now we live in a very hopeless time, people. And I, I grant you, it is a very hopeless time to be living in many ways. We could spend a lot of time tonight, but I don't need to remind you of the last two years of utter, absolute chaos and hopelessness that has come to this country. Now, I know millions of good Americans, basically good Americans, are looking for a Savior. That's why a lot of people are ready to welcome the Donald back again. And the Republican Party are all worried about how they're going to get rid of him. Which lets you know that there's no future in the political system of this country. But there's hope in the cross. There is hope in the one who hung on that cross, who rose up from the dead, and who will come again in glory to sit upon the throne of his Father's kingdom. So I, I'm so happy tonight to be able to tell you that there's a reason to believe when hope seems hopeless. Hope is what fuels faith. When you remove hope, faith withers because hope is the substance that brings faith to the heart of our people. So tonight we want to look at the cross. We want to find out why this cross for the last 2,000 years has been the focus 
of devoted, God-fearing, Bible-believing, blood-washed, spirit-filled, devil-chasing, sin-hating people. Why is that cross so coveted? It's no other symbol in the world with one word carries the meaning that the word cross does. You don't have to explain to anybody why the word cross is so meaningful. It does have meaning for those who believe and will keep on believing when believing seems pretty hopeless. And that's where we are in 2022, in a kind of a hopeless time of history. But there is room at the cross for hope. And we want to think about that tonight. I've been reflecting about the, the focus on this, the, the crucifixion for 2,000 years. The Western world rose on the foundation of the cross and the empty tomb. The crucifixion and the resurrection are the spark that became the catalyst for the building of 2,000 years of Western history. And the reason that the West is withering today is because we took our eyes off of the cross and the empty tomb where Jesus was laid. And when we took our eyes off of those two historic events, and no longer believed, we begin to fail in the Western world. And we have been on a trajectory of failure to the degree that we have departed from the cross and the empty tomb where Jesus rose from the dead. And tonight, if we... If we don't do anything else tonight, beloved, because I have no clue exactly where this lesson is going to go. Holy Spirit, living God, send your Holy Spirit. Take this lesson where you want it to go. Eliminate my thoughts. And Father in heaven, these are your sheep people. You died for the sheep. You did not die for the swine or the dogs or the snakes or the wild people. Father in heaven, you, you died for your people, your people. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Father in heaven, if we are your sheep, please, Communicate to us through the medium of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Increase our faith in a faithless world. Give us belief when it seems so hard to believe in a time of such, uh, of such utter hopelessness. And this we beg of thee for the glory and honor of the name of Jesus who suffered and bled and died and was buried and rose again. 
for our salvation. In His name we pray, amen. Now church, I want you to think about the cross. I want the young men and women to know that the two greatest events in all of history that ever will be until Christ returns, that's the blessed hope. The blessed hope. The, the poor preterists have thrown away the blessed hope. Pray for the preterists who've thrown away the blessed hope. Jesus will again appear on this earth in his own person, and he's going to do exactly what the Bible says he will do. That's not the subject tonight. I want you to think about the cross. What does this cross mean to every one of us here tonight? Now, we have the distinct privilege of being 2,000 years on this side of the cross. We can look backward 2,000 years to where the disciples of Jesus had watched him be placed in the tomb. They watched their king, the one they wanted to coronate as the king of the kingdom, they watched him be placed in a tomb that was sealed by Pontius Pilate, guarded by Roman soldiers, lest someone steal the body away. That band of disciples that left and fled and ran and hid because they too feared to be arrested and die. And only a handful of Christians remained to be at the cross where Jesus died. Among that body was John the Apostle, whom Jesus loved, and he loved Jesus. And that's why a lot of people read the Gospel of John. For that and about a hundred other reasons. And so it was that when they left that day on Passover day, 33 AD, put Jesus in the tomb on the daylight part of that day, preparation day. All hope vanished from them. Now we might ask, why? They knew what the prophet said. He will be despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. All we like sheep have gone astray. All those beautiful words in Isaiah 53 had been there 700 years before Jesus was crucified. So they ought to have had some recognition that at the end of the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, it's in two parts. It's, the first part is looking back to what he's going to do. The latter part is why he was 
crucified, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased God that Jesus died. And so tonight we, we want to look for meaning at the cross because that's where our hope is. Now we could ask the question tonight, beloved, when did the first evangelical gospel news come about the cross of Jesus? Well, it would take us back to the Garden of Eden and sadly to that old serpent called the devil and Satan, Revelation 12, 9 and Revelation 20, verse 2. In case you've never heard about the old serpent called the devil and Satan. It's in the Bible. I'm just a Bible reader like you. If I read it in the Bible, mouth of two or more witnesses, I believe it. I don't have to run to Strong's Concordance. Don't have to call some well-known theologian to tell me what I read in the Bible is true. It is divinely inspired, providentially preserved. No higher criticism necessary. The first hint of the gospel is found at the scene of the Garden of Eden. The very first hint of a gospel. When our God, speaking to that old serpent called the devil and Satan, said, and I, God, will put enmity between thee and the woman, between Satan and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, it, the woman's seed, shall bruise thy head. That's the promise of the serpent crusher. The one who would come out of glory and crush the opposition of the cosmic battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. I know this is information some people reject. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, the bruising took place. And Satan may have thought he had won the victory when the body was put in the tomb. But when Jesus rose from the dead, praise God, he returned with the keys to hell, and he, re he returned with power over death. He now held the keys of death, hell, and the grave when he was resurrected from the dead. Check Revelation 8, 118. So now we, we ask ourselves, beloved, if the, if the hint of the gospel is right where sin entered into the world. And remember, sin did not enter into the world until we had a tempter. Is that true? Amen. 
Last time I checked, Adam and Eve were visited by someone. Oh, you didn't know that. Well, yes, they were. They were visited in the Garden of Eden, and that tempter is identified, called a serpent, unusual serpent. He was, he quoted scripture, didn't he? He was cunning, he was clever, he was manipulative, he was full of narcissistic behavior, all the demonstration of the character of evil was present there. All through the Old Testament, the cross is shining through. Our New Testament believers can pick up the story of the cross in Genesis, in the life of Abraham, offering up Isaac on the altar. They can pick it up in multiple places, every Old Testament person is a prefigurement of Jesus. His portrait is arrayed all through the Old Testament. So it had not ought to be a surprise when Jesus was crucified, but it was. Because those early disciples, they wanted a king that would deliver them from Roman occupation. They were very much like good, solid, conservative Americans today who want their country back and they want a savior to bring it back for them by putting some kind of a savior in the White House. America cannot come back except by way of the cross. America cannot return except by way of the cross. And so it is tonight that our hope as a covenant body is resting on the covenant that is represented by the cross here, which is the oath which God himself, Jehovah himself, swear by his very own name to our father Abraham. Not based upon Abraham's performance. It is an unconditional covenant. And that's why we are here tonight. We are here on the foundation and basis of an everlasting covenant. And time and time again when Israel was in great trouble and they cried out, in anguish to their king, he responded by remembering a covenant he made with Abraham, ratified in Isaac, multiplied in Jacob, exemplified, amplified in Israel from the moment God made the covenant till tonight. Covenant will live forever. We have no reason not to be hopeful people. No reason at all for us not to be hopeful. Nonetheless, there's a lot of despair, a whole lot of despair in America today. And that's why people, so many millions, did not hesitate to roll up their sleeve and receive an injection of experimental poison.
And sadly, people are now being buried with blood clots as a result of blood clots, heart attacks, multiple problems because we've lost the way of the cross, the way of the tomb where faith is generated. Faith is built from the hope that is residual in the cross and the empty tomb. That's where our hearts are going to have to rest in days to come. We're going to occupy till the king comes. And we're going to do everything we can. But I'm telling you, until the king arrives, we will not have what we're looking for. So it's you and I that must hope. So I want to share with you tonight an area of the Bible in the Old Testament that takes us back to Passover and the Exodus. I want to take you back. Now we all know from reading Exodus 12 that the very, very prefiguring of the cross is in Exodus at the time of their departure from Egypt. Every family painted the doorposts and the lintel. Is that true? With the blood that prefigured the true sacrifice of Christ. And that those two doorposts with the lintel at the top was the first little hint of a cross. Now you remember when the Israelites left Egypt, they left because they were anxious to get rid of their chains. They lived under tyranny. We've experienced a bit of tyranny, and the people living in the blue states have experienced a lot of tyranny in the last two years. I don't like tyrants, and I don't like to live under tyranny. But I think that we're being punished as a nation, and sadly, when a nation's being punished, everybody is going to suffer some. And we're going to have to take our licks. Those early disciples suffered. John the Baptist was beheaded. The apostle James was slain by the sword. Stephen was martyred. How many thousands and thousands of our people perished in the first 300 years of that bloodbath sustained and suffered by the believers of this cross. When they refused to say Caesar is God, that was a death sentence. There were times when every citizen in the Roman Empire was required to say Caesar is Lord. Christians who refused to say those three words who instead believe that Jesus is Lord, Master, King, Savior, Deliverer, they paid with their lives. Many of them. Lots of them. Now, isn't it interesting that they keep talking about how they're going to deal with those who rejected 
this lovely experimental spike protein. What will we do with these people? You see, we live in an age of tyranny, and tyranny has come to America. God sent us. He teased us. My opinion, please. He teased us by sending us Donald Trump. And Donald Trump did a world of good for this country. A world of good. And if you look and see what's been undone and that Trump did good, you know why we're suffering today. And someday historians will write about the most courageous president since Teddy Roosevelt, for sure. Nonetheless, our hope is in the cross, not in the arm of flesh. It is in the cross and the empty tomb. So come with me for a moment, and let's go to the exodus of Egypt. Here are these Israelites. They're going to be delivered, emancipated. They're going to lose their chains, and that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? When they left Egypt on the night of the Passover, a night to be much observed, it was history in the making. One of the most beautiful, epic stories in all of history, the exodus out of Egypt. What a marvelous story. What a story. Those people marched out of Egypt under the blood, just under three million people, under the light of a paschal full moon, and they marched out not through a well-worn passage that could have taken them up through a safe place, but God directed them right into the heart of the wilderness that faced the, the Red Sea, the opposite of what any strategist would have recommended. So they arrive at the Red Sea and miraculously God delivered them through such a magnificent deliverance that Benjamin Franklin argued for the scene of the Red Sea to be on our national seal as the historical event of history. The Red Sea. When they made it through the Red Sea, they ended up in the Sinai Desert. From the flesh pots, the onions, the garlic, whoops, I'm sorry, the watermelons, they had everything in Egypt. They were slaves, but they were well-fed slaves. They had tyranny, but they knew where they were going to live. They knew what their next meal would be because they lived under pure socialism. It was a state-planned economy, complete with mandated abortion for the male children. So it was a tyrannical world that they left behind. Now they're in the desert. Now it's going to be wonderful, isn't it? Out in the desert, what will they eat? What do you find to eat in a desert? Just under three million people. What do you do when you get thirsty? Very limited. Imagine the world 
that our slave ancestors faced when they left totalitarian Marxist enslavement and went to absolute freedom in the Sinai desert, now they had to be ambitious, creative, self-reliant. They had to be just what the first Americans were when they built this country. Freedom is not free, and freedom means that we have to be creative, innovative, ambitious, self-reliant, and we have to be a people that know how freedom works. Our founding fathers knew how freedom operated. It's inscribed in our Declaration of Independence, inscribed in our Bill of Rights. Freedom is hard to hold on to. And our Israelite ancestors really got themselves in trouble. In the desert, are you with me? Oh, did they get themselves in trouble. They murmured. They complained. Jamie, I'm still thinking of your sermon on murmuring. They murmured, murmured and murmured. They complained. They quarreled among themselves. Remember in Egypt, they're so focused on work. They didn't have time to argue. They didn't have time to fight each other. They became fractious. And they became quarrelsome. And poor Moses, from daylight till dark, is trying to settle their controversies. You know the story. I don't have to read it out of the Bible. Well, everything in the world that you can imagine happens. And God's got so tired of hearing the complaining of those people that he decided a unique form of punishment. So what did God do? He sent some serpents to bite those people. Some venomous poisonous serpents. I know a boy in here that got bit by a copperhead not too awfully long ago. Anybody else ever been bit by a poisonous snake? Do you know anyone that really, truly loves? I know there's some weirdos, but does anyone really love the snakes? Why do you think there's such an inherent opposition to snakes? You think it might have you think it might have anything to do with the Garden of Eden and that serpent? Think about it. So the serpents are biting the daylights out of those Israelites. Now I, I, I know it's hot in that desert. And, and when you're fighting poisonous snakes and you don't and you're thirsty all the time, and you're tired of this manna. It, just the sight of that manna. And I, I want you to think, folks, how much of your New Testament is tied back to this time in history. Jesus compared the manna of the old desert in Sinai to the bread from heaven. I am the bread of life. I will be your manna if you trust in me. So those Israelites... 
They became so frustrated with those poisonous serpents. My goodness gracious. Can you blame them? Can anyone blame them for the, the, the serpents that, that just pestered these poor people? In Numbers 21, 6, the Bible says Jehovah sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and much people of Israel died. These Israelites are dying from poisonous, venomous snakes. If I find a copperhead, he's gone. I don't know what those people shot him with. I don't think they shot him with a gun like we would think. I'm sure they did a lot of killing. But a desert is a favorite place for poisonous snakes. They love that sunshine. Now, what in the world are they going to do? How are, they going to, how are they going to stop the biting of the serpents? That old serpent, he just, that old devil, Satan, and that old devil called the serpent. Man, he, he crawls through history. And now he's, in the form of a serpent, he's biting these poor Israelites. Hey, folks, feel a little compassion for your ancestors. No air conditioning. Stuck out in the Sinai Desert, sweat pouring off of you, and you're being bitten by snakes. So somebody in the camp says, go tell Moses to cut off the snakes before we all die. I'm paraphrasing the Bible. They might have been a little more choice in their words. And so God does something strange. Now, this is a strange story. It's a limit story, meaning that it, it cannot be superseded by anything you want to add to it to amplify it. God just does the whole thing at one point to bring to pass something that ordinary people like, oh, let's say a psychologist would say, this is crazy. This is lunacy, even though I know that lunacy is rampant in America today. Here's what God instructs Moses to do. Here's what the Almighty Creator said to stop those snakes from biting you. I'm now in Numbers 21, verse 8. Make thee a fiery serpent. Set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looks upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass. Brass is a symbol of judgment. The brazen altar made of brass. Brass is judgment. Everyone that looks on this brass, brazen serpent that I will put on a pole came to pass that if a, certain had, if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now, folks, I find that very strange. That's, we're going to stop these poisonous snakes, not by some miracle, but we're going we're to go out and we're going to make an image made of bronze of a poisonous serpent. 
And we're going to put it, we're going to attach it to a pole. We're going to stick it in the ground. And all you have to do to get healed from a snake bite is look into that serpent on the pole. Now, how many think that sounds a little strange? Well, at least 10 or 12 of you did. Now, what is, what is, ask yourselves, why would God stop the serpent infestation by having these people that have been bitten stare into the face of that which they hated. Nobody liked these serpents. Now they're, they're asking, God's saying, go stare at one on a pole and you'll get healed. I love the Bible because it insults our intellect. Amen. Now, what God is saying is that look at what you are most terrified of and you will become more brave. Go stare into the eye of what terrifies you and you'll be healed. Now, you may or may not know that the classical therapeutic treatment for people that have anxiety attacks, fear that grips them, terror that is induced by their fear, requires voluntary exposure of that person to face what terrifies them. They have to look at what terrifies them. They have to look into the face of the very thing that terrifies them. That's what Israel was told to do, looking to that serpent. <coughs> Excuse me, attached to that bowl, you'll be healed. So the moral is, bravery is better than being safe. Bravery is better than safety. It takes more courage to go face the serpent of, of what terrifies you than it is to hide from that which faces you. Better for us to look square at where history is moving us today than to hide from it. Better to be brave than to be a coward. Better to ask ourselves, what do we plan to do when they move sufficient millions of non-white aliens into this country until they invade our space? Better to look into the face of evil than to hide from it. Now, the Bible tells us, people, that the cross forces us to face ourselves. When you look at the cross, you are looking at whatever is wrong in your life that had to be corrected by the blood. You had to look into that cross. 
Remember, the Bible says, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's you and I. If we ever want to come to repentance, we have to look at what terrifies us. And what terrifies us is the guilt that we know we harbor, but we don't want to look at it. We don't want to face it. We don't want to run from it, hide from it, shield ourselves from it, pretend that we're in repentance when we're not. Now, here's a strange thing. Moses told the Israelites to go look into the face of the serpent on the pole and they get healed. Now, you know that there's a medical symbol of a snake wound around a staff. You know what I'm talking about? Do you know that didn't start with the Greeks? Didn't begin with the Greeks, it began with the Hebrews. All truth begins in the Word of God. And I'm not suggesting that that serpent in the medical world is in any way relevant to what I'm saying here tonight, so forget that. But I do want you to turn your Bible open to John's Gospel, chapter 3. <coughs> Gospel of John, chapter 3. I'd like everyone in the house to do that. Boys and girls, please. Please open your Bible, boys and girls, to John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 14. So let's read that together, out loud. And as... I'm in, and as, I'm in John 3, 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him not perish, but have ever, eternal life. So now, we face another problem. We've moved 1,500 years in time from the serpent, brazen serpent in the desert. Now, 1,500 years later, Jesus is referring us back to our Old Testament history. He says, I want you to remember that even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up on a cross, on a staff. Even so must the Son of God be looked upon. Now we're all very familiar, beloved, with the fact that when the serpent arrived in the Garden of Eden, he arrived as a poisonous Marxist. Um, let's see, could I use a different term? He arrived as a radical Marxist. He was a liar. Every word that I hear on major television networks, with few exceptions, is a lie. A lie. And I know who the father of lies is. It tells me that in John 8:44. But Jesus said, lift me up 
lift me up just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Now, if that does not challenge us to look at this cross in a very, very deep way, I don't know what, what else it would mean. That we are to look at what this cross means to each of us individually. That we will be healed if we are willing to come to full repentance, unload our guilt, the guilt of sin at the cross of Christ, and be cleared of the venom, the poison of sin, the virus of sin. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Think about now the cross, the cross, or we could call it the crucifix, upon which Jesus will be nailed. And here we have from the Bible, Old and New Testament, a record that teaches us in the very words of Jesus in John 3 that just as that serpent was lifted up and put on a pole, he will likewise. Now you know in the Sinai desert they were healed of the poison. Venomous poison of the serpent. And that cross will heal us of the same venomous poison of the serpent that is infecting the, the, the nation we live in. He has injected us with the poison of Marxism, radical Marxism, and it's become infectious. But there's something far worse than that, and that is hard hearts that are willing to look into the cross and unload their debt of sin by the only one that can bring healing to the sinner. The death of Jesus on a Roman crucifix was not without careful planning. The Romans created it, I believe, because it was the most torturous form of death that they could conceive of for their political miscreants, those who they wanted to see die for unwillingness to live in tyranny. So you know that when Jesus came into the world, Jesus faced... As, on, as, as he walked the road to the cross, Jesus faced all the venom of the Roman Marxist tyranny that could be hurled at him. Plus, everything else that could come his way. Now, death on a Roman crucifix, first of all, it's death by suffocation. It's death by dehydration. It's death by trauma. 
It's death by excessive bleeding. It is death by exposure. And whatever else you want to throw in, it's the worst you can imagine. Because it's slow and torturous and it takes time to die. Now this is Jesus. Think of yourself as Jesus. It won't hurt any of us to try and identify ourselves as Jesus made his way down the Via Doloroso on the way to the cross. You know then, this is going to be about as bad as it can get for Jesus. And some of you people have walked through the tragedies of life. And you know what I'm talking about. Tragedies, sorrows, pain. <coughs> Think of Jesus. Jesus knew that it was coming. He, know, he knew what he must endure. Plus, you know that one of your chosen disciples will betray you for money, Judas. Plus, your very best friend, disciple, Peter, will deny you. Plus, the fact that there will be a crowd saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! These may have been the people that he fed the bread and fishes to. These are some of the people that may have been healed by Jesus. Plus the fact that you're in the hands of a tyrant governor <coughs> who for political expediency will be glad to send you finally to the cross as long as nobody complains to Caesar about his decisions. Plus you know that Jesus is an innocent man that he has done nothing wrong, that he has done nothing but heal people and raise people from the dead. He's a sinless, innocent man getting ready to die the most torturous death that could be devised by man. The story of the crucifixion is a limit story as well as the serpent in the wilderness because you can't make it any worse than it is. You can't say something about the, the death of Jesus that would make it more horrible than what it actually was from the pages of Scripture. Now, we've been looking at the cross for 2,000 years, people. Can we, do we dare look at the cross one more time? Do we dare stare into the cross upon which Jesus was impaled. How do we process his death? Historically, Christians would make a pilgrimage through Jerusalem to the stations of the cross. They would mark various points on the road that Jesus walked to Mount Calvary. That's what they would do. Now suppose you're walking that road tonight. It won't hurt any of us to imagine something. Think of yourself on the road 
to be crucified between two thieves. Perhaps if you're a woman, you could be Mary. Mary was there. Mary is going to offer her only son born by a miracle, miraculous conception and virgin birth. Only one son from her womb was conceived in that manner. So you offer your son to the destruction of his body and you're going to watch it happen. That's courage, folks. That's raw courage. This is the mother that doesn't hold her child back. This is a mother that watches her son go off to war and never come back. This is a mother that has born a child in her womb, nourished the child from her own body, and then sent him out into the world knowing that he might die. This is courage. The cross gives us courage. We grow in courage at the cross. The more we will look into the cross, the braver and stronger we will be because it will teach us of how unworthy we are that Jesus would go through what he went through to deliver us from our sin. Imagine you're Pilate. You doubt the truth. You don't even believe that truth, absolute truth, exists. Or maybe you're Judas. You betray your very best friend for filthy lucre. You betray your own conscience by compromising with evil. How many people compromised their conscience and rolled up their sleeve for the injection? Out of fear. They compromised with their own conscience. They didn't want to do it, but they did it. We're not blaming those people that much. We're just showing you how human we are and how weak we can be in a time of real testing. Or perhaps you're standing with a mob and you're saying, crucify him, crucify him. Think of that crowd and imagine it's you. All the things that we hate the most are itemized and displayed at the cross. It's not just one serpent that's biting us. It's a whole nest of poisonous snakes. That's all the things within us that terrorize us. We don't like to think of how vulnerable we are and how weak we are outside of the power of the cross and the empty tomb. So tonight, would we dare look at the cross? And what do you see when you look at the cross? Well, you see the destruction, you see the death, you see the sorrow, you see the pain that Jesus endured. 
Think of your own life. How have each of us offended God? Look into the terror of your own sin when you look at the cross. It invites us to look into the terror of our guilt. That we share the guilt to some degree of a nation tonight. Is there any among us that have not in some way contributed to the fall of the American nation we live in? Have we kept all the Ten Commandments? What does our record demonstrate? It demonstrates that we are no different than those Israelites in the Sinai Desert, that we have strayed from courage and faith. And we've allowed actions and compromises to happen in our lives that we wish had never happened. Because we're a flawed people living in in a fallen world. And we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the cross is the remedy that God has provided to heal us, to make us strong, to face the future, to look into the future and know that there is hope because of Calvary and the empty tomb. So we look at the cross. We ask ourselves, how have we offended God Look harder. Look harder. Look harder. What do you see? You see your own life and you know mistakes that you have made, that I have made, that we would like to undo, but we can't redo. So we need to be healed. And that's what repentance is. It's being willing to open our hearts to God and saying, please heal me. I am broken. I suffer from guilt. So amid your confession and remorse for sin, you suddenly... If you keep looking, if you keep looking at the thing that terrifies you, which is our own sin, I well remember the day my mother, when I was about four years old, washed my mouth out with a bar of soap. That's not fun. But it taught me that lying was unacceptable. And that you better tell the truth to her. Or you will have a bar of soap. Not very tasty. Now, beloved, I know that the time is late. So I'm going to finish this as rapidly as I can. So pray for me. 
Now, beloved, it will be at the cross and at the, at the idea of repentance where we unload the sin, guilt of our lives in true, humble, godly repentance when we consider the price made for our sin. God forbid that we should ever live at a time when we face the one who died and we said, I didn't have time to repent. It wasn't convenient. It wasn't, I just didn't think I was that sinful. Well, you know what? Do you know we, do, we arrive in this world depraved? Our human condition, we're D-O-A on arrival. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins until we are revived by the power, supernatural power and quickening of the Holy Spirit. We are D-O-A from the point of arrival. The cross not only it is at the cross that we not only discover who we are, that we are sinners, but what we have become as children of the fall, fallen, wicked, and depraved. And that is why husbands and wives quarrel. That's why divorce happens. That's why Every conceivable type of sin occurs because we are sin, sinful people that need healed and renewed in regenerational faith by the resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead. You know, there was a man named Job the most tested man, one of the most tested men in all of history. When you start the book of Job, you think, my goodness, this was a righteous man. He shunned evil. He was just before God. He walked with God. My, that sounds righteous. When Job came to the end of his, his temptation, and these are the words found in the book of Job, Job is the one who said, I find myself vile, I abhor myself, I repent in sackcloth and ashes. This was a man reputed to be what we would call righteous. The truth is, as Isaiah says in chapter 64, verse 6, we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousness are but filthy rags. And we fade away like a leaf. We need the cross as the only remedy for delivering us and setting us free from the chains of sin that enslave us by guilt. You know, Jesus arrived into the world speaking absolute truth. The reason Jesus was crucified is he spoke 
absolute truth wherever he spoke, whenever he spoke. And all who follow Jesus and speak the truth in a world filled with lies will be persecuted. You speak the truth in 21st century America and you're going to be persecuted. Count on it. By its very definition, truth must be crucified in a world where lies, depravity, sin, wickedness, and a thirst for power is everywhere. When we look at the cross, beloved, we are looking into a mirror. In the mirror that we see at Calvary, it reveals what we have become in a fallen world. It reveals the collective wickedness of an entire nation in the 21st century. And when we keep looking at the cross and remembering how we have offended God, how many lies did we ever tell? How many lies do you have to tell to be a liar? How many things do you have to steal to be a thief? Yet it is, at, it is at the cross where we find our total healing. And so I want to invite you to remember the cross in relationship to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And I'm going to get you out of here so you can relax. Now consider that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil can be represented in the cross bar, the horizontal bar. Well, for the sake of this little discussion, that is representative of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we will recognize the vertical pole as the tree of life. Now, when we think of this, we see that the cross, the crucifix, is the only way that we understand the problem that entered into the world at the Garden of Eden by way of the serpent and the healing that must come through the one who crushed death, and hell at his rising from the tomb. Think of the cross and think of how vile people have been that have found healing at the cross. Some of the most vile sinners you know have been healed by the blood of Jesus. There are beautiful hymns that say, the most vile sinner born into the Israelite world can be healed at that cross. What does it take to heal a murderer? The Bible says if you've ever hated a brother without a justifiable cause, you're a murderer. 
How many murders do we actually know that we shook hands with? That hated someone without a cause. I'm talking about a fellow Israelite. And so tonight, beloved, the longer and the deeper we look into the cross to expose our sin and our guilt, do you know what we see? We see the unlimited boundaries of a divine love that no matter how sinful we have ever been, the healing power of the cross can heal that sinner. The love of God is boundless. It exceeds, far, it's greater. If every man were a scribe by trade and could write and define the love of God, if we tried to imagine the ocean carrying all the drops of God's love, we couldn't drain the ocean dry for the love that God had for the people he came to redeem. And how have they treated him? Some of them will, 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 will find it difficult to even read the Bible. Some of them don't want to hear the gospel, especially the gospel of the kingdom. The Bible tells us regarding the love of God by St. Paul, Romans 8, beginning in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as more than conquerors. We are sheep for the slaughter. But nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. What do we have to fear, church, in a world where there's a Savior that loves us with no limitations? if our heart is right with him. The cross of Jesus Christ is where we make all things right with God. And the resurrection is a confirmation of when things are made right, we are regenerated, empowered, to be more than conquerors through him that loved us. And so let me close with reminding you of this. When the serpent entered into the garden, remember to unite the cross with those two trees. Think of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because remember now, God told 
Israelites to look at the brazen serpent in the desert. And then he said, look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Stare into that cross and you'll be healed. Stare at the cross. Stare harder. Harder. Harder until you are convicted of an addiction. Until you are converted in your heart that I will leave this Passover a changed person because I have looked into the cross and it has identified me as a sinner. And I need, I desperately need to repent. That may be one or it may be all of us. Could be all of us. When Irenaeus, a second century church father, visited the cross, he likened Mary to the second Eve. And he said that Eve was willing to take the fruit of her virgin womb. That fruit was Jesus. And that Mary was willing to give her son the fruit of her womb to replace the fruit that Adam and Eve had eaten, or should I say stolen from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's what Jesus did. He restores us to the tree of life. The tree of life at Calvary blossomed from the cross. It made everything wrong in Genesis 3 become right for those who come to repentance. It made the tree of life real because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And I will promise to close with John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you.